I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. We're speaking today with Tommy McGee. Tommy is an LMHCCAP, that's Licensed Mental Health Counselor and Certified Addiction Professional, and he holds a BS in Ministry and a Master's in Counseling Psychology. He has more than 20 years' experience in the mental health and addictions field. He previously has served as Clinical Director at the Henley Center for Counseling at Origins Behavioral Health. Currently, he heads up Balance Matters Counseling in Delray Beach. Most significant, Tommy is a black guy. Significant because we hear all kinds of stories about the specific issues that the black community deals with when it comes to substance abuse. For a while in this current epidemic, we heard, oh, the black folks don't have problems. They've learned how to handle them within their communities. Then, I believe it was last year, there were several major reports came out about the surge and the rates of overdose deaths, particularly among black men. And you know, Abby and I have reached out numerous times looking for experts in this arena, and we've been less than successful. So thank you so much, Tommy, for joining us in this important discussion. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The first obvious question, why is there such a mixed message? Why is there so little good data about the black community and substance use disorder? No one, I like the how the significance has to do with me being a black guy. I agree with that. I was speaking with one of my peers and also a client of mine that has come into my practice recently that works in the field of addiction. And one of the things that he talked about was the struggle that he and his other substance abuse employees have in reaching people within the black community is that lack of trust, especially as it relates to the medical field. Even though he is also a person of color, he said that he struggles with making contact with the leadership within those communities. In some cases, it's because they believe that they have a handle on what's happening in their particular community. Specifically, he was speaking about the spiritual community, the churches that he makes contact with, and some of the individual practitioners in inner city. They almost gave him the impression that they felt that he and his peers, the endeavor they were trying to embark on, was almost like competition for the population that they had within the inner city. I also believe that part of the difficulty has to do with the trust of the inner city. Being a product of the inner city myself, I know that we lacked education as far as the resources that were available outside of our immediate community. Tell us just a little bit about your personal background. Now, you came from urban Dallas, that's correct? Right. I grew up in a, a part of Dallas called Oak Cliff. I like to refer to it as working class. People that are outside of Oak Cliff would probably not refer to it that way. They would probably say that it's in lower income class, poverty in certain pockets of Oak Cliff. Crime rates are high. Drug usage is prevalent within that community. So I grew up in an area very familiar with law enforcement. The thing that kept me plugged in, so to speak, was the fact I was also an athlete. So I was a part of that community within that inner city, which is a culture within a culture. Again, I grew up in part of Dallas that was riddled with violence, substance use, single parent home, a lot of poverty. Our contact with mental health or substance abuse services was extremely limited. Growing up, I knew of one person who had actually recovered from the disease of addiction, who had gone to treatment, which was provided by the Salvation Army. I remember she had participated in a 12-step program and had actually recovered. But that was one person 
that I knew from my community. Not only was she an, an anomaly, not something that we believed was available for all of us, that we had access to uh, substance abuse services. And it was not something that was encouraged by the church that I was a member of. And ironically, my father was the pastor of that church. Which very interesting to me, and I must admit is troubling. There seem to be two separate worlds, and they are defined by the differences in where and what and how you experience life in your future. And some would look at this as the sociology that you had versus the sociology that Brent and I had when we grew up. I worked in the Broward County jails for a while. Most of the prisoners were black. They just were. Occasionally, I would sit down and say, so tell me about you. Oh, you wouldn't understand. Why? wouldn't I understand because you're a white Jewish guy. I said, well, then explain to me what your life was all about. I think it speaks a lot to that when we talk about substance abuse, if we get into the areas of medication assisted treatment, if we get into the more common areas of being on a drug for an experimental or, or, or just trying it for fun and getting addicted, that's one aspect. But one of the things that pleases me to have you here, sir, is that I don't think we talk enough about the social sociologic differences that really exist, sadly, in our society. When you speak to patients, do you get into discussions of what it's like to be non-white growing up in an all-white school, that type of thing? Are those issues that lead to complications in you dealing with substance abuse? Does my question even make sense? It does. It does. I was, again, speaking to the young man that I was with today. He grew up in an area that was predominantly white. Again, he's a man of color. What he talked about was this impression that he always had that he was never truly being listened to, that people were never really present. For the most part, the people that he was coming in contact with were trying to introduce ideas to him without necessarily becoming familiar with who he was as a person. So he always thought that he was a stranger in this, I'll call it white world, that he was trying to find a way into, but he was always feeling as if he was a person standing on the outside looking in. The way he explained it is it made it difficult for him to accept some of the services, and I'm referring to all services, whether it was college education, some tutoring, some communities or networking within his high school and then ultimately his college, that he always felt that he was not fully accepted for who he was because he never felt as if the people that were engaging with him sincerely had an interest in knowing who he was. He wasn't absolutely sure whether or not that was his own paranoia, but he just always felt as if people would be present with him, but not truly listening to him. What you said, to some degree, it's like right on target with the, I hate to say the Black experience because it's such a general statement, but with many that coexist in both worlds, as you put it, for myself, being in the substance abuse field, as well as being a Black man, Often, I was the only Black leader in those programs. I was one of few working in the industry at that time in the substance abuse field. Felt as if I had to play a certain role working in the treatment centers that I was working in, and then a different role when I would return to my own community. You mentioned what the situation was like when you were growing up. So going back 30, 40, 50 years, something in that range. Have things changed much since then? Funny question. I was asking myself that before we got on the call. The question I asked myself, are we talking about the same thing? An answer to your question is, it is the same thing. The circumstances are different. As I was mentioning the young lady that I knew in my father's church home, in that the number of people that are aware that 
substance abuse services exist, I would say, has multiplied by 10 to 100. But the lack of direct services to the minority community is still the same. There are many reasons why that exists. I can speak personally to some of those reasons. One of the things that I know for sure is have some African-Americans on my caseload. The reality of it is, is that the only African-Americans I have on my caseload are those who can afford my services. Those who don't have access either to healthcare services or to the resources to pay for my services are not receiving them. We all know that there is this major need for mental health and substance abuse services, especially in an inner city. There were not many providers that were willing to take the pay cut to offer their services to that community. And there continue to not be many providers that are willing to take the pay cut to work in those communities. Is there data that shows that there is indeed a need and a problem in the African-American community? On my own personal experience and that of the CDC, as well as the treatment programs that I've come in contact with, there is data that says that few African-Americans who are in need of substance abuse services, very few of those receive those services. The comparisons are between Hispanics as well as white Americans. Few of the African-Americans actually receive those services in those communities. There is a need within the community that does not receive the attention. That's very interesting. And the origin of substance abuse. I remember when it used to be suggested, and I, perhaps it's still a, a source of deep conversation, is that the people from the Black community did not have the stable environments, meaning family, meaning fathers. That was a discussion, mm -hmm. meaning that the churches were very powerful in these people's lives. As one person said to me, please don't tell my grandma I'm in trouble. There's that need for that community basis. It seems to be such an absence in what we read about the black family community. Not that the white communities, we don't have perfect families either. Let's just keep it in balance. How much of it is that type of cultural thing with a focus? Where is substance abuse coming from? What's producing it? Right. I mean, I like that. I like that discussion about the origin. For centuries, we've had substance abuse when African-Americans were actually still in slavery. So I think it also has a lot to do with how we go about defining it. I think the opioid epidemic has lent itself to further examining that. Initially, we really looked at substance abuse, I'm just going to use the crack cocaine epidemic as an example. You know, when we really looked at substance abuse and how it existed in the urban communities during the crack epidemic, it was that we were looking at these black faces and children being born prematurely as a result of the crack epidemic. Now, when we look at substance abuse and we start talking about origins, I think we also, if we believe that to some degree, addiction can be hereditary, can be passed down, that people can have a pre disposition to it. And we look at the number of white Americans that are now becoming victim to this epidemic. If we do enough research on those origins, then we'll see that there are maybe not the exact same numbers. If we look at the number of housewives that were addicted to prescription drugs or that were alcoholics, when we talk about substance use, if we look at it under that umbrella, that the numbers may equal out. We may be talking about heroin addicts versus alcoholics, but based upon my experience working in the substance abuse field, many of the patients that we would have 
have admitted into our programming were not of African-American descent, not just because they didn't have access to those resources, but we would have many of those housewives who previously had just been home taking care of their children and had developed alcoholic tendencies after the children had left the nest. My answer to your question may seem a little roundabout, is that our definition of what substance use really looks like, if we take a look at that more broadly, we may find that there is more of a balance as it relates to the people that are suffering with that illness than we previously really thought about. It gives us cause to think about the basic definitions. We have a list of behaviors that describe inappropriate use of medications, but it doesn't tell us the origin. We are inundated with the need to respond to it I believe disproportionate look at it as a medication-treatable event. Medicines, there is a time and place for it. There is no question for it. Suboxone and methadone and, and whatever. They, we do need those. But it takes away all that you're referring to, all the other stuff. And that's the stuff that's talked about in psychotherapy. And that's the stuff that's talked about in AA and NA. Do you find yourself at odds with therapists who come from other ethnic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds and how you look at the substance abuse problem? I do. I find myself at odds with other therapists and how I look at the substance abuse problem and how I look at the language we use in regards to that. Because that's kind of intertwined with what I was just talking about. We start trying to describe certain substances that our, our population are using as whether one is worse than the other. We lay the foundation to class what an addict and an alcoholic looks like. And as we lay that type of foundation, we can't help but start to talk about those patients differently. And when we start to talk about them differently, we can't help but start to treat them differently. When I say I find myself at odds, what I really mean by that is that at times it's difficult to help change the language as it relates to patients and, as you said, substance use disorders. I think all of us, I mean, I have a way that I talk about substance use. I have a way that I describe alcoholism or drug addiction. I have a way that I refer to those populations. And often I don't think about the lack of cultural sensitivity I might have as I describe those different populations. And so when someone confronts me about those descriptions, that's what I mean by being at odds. Sometimes I'm holding my peers accountable to those descriptions and how we can better describe or talk about substance use. Then we are at odds, so to speak. More often than not, the professionals that I speak with are more than willing to learn a different way to treat substance use disorder. Which even takes us to the other ethical question. Who are we to say you need an intervention? We know the vast majority of people can be high functioning in spite of the use of substances. There are people who do plenty of recreational use. At which point do they cross the line where it's our responsibility to say you need some type of treatment? And is it our responsibility to do that? So we use a DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder. We're looking at it on a continuum. Part of what I was describing before when I talked about how we define substance use disorder, I was thinking specifically of a young woman that I treated who came from an extremely affluent family. She took exception with being referred to as alcohol use disorder severe, wanted to give me her argument as to why she should be mild. And so we talked about, we talked about the continuum and the reason that she wanted to give me her argument had to do with exactly what you're saying. She was extremely high functioning, was the owner of a multi-million dollar company, 
She had not missed work. Her marriage was still intact, although it was on the rocks. Because of her socioeconomic position, she didn't have any DUIs. She had a very good relationship with the judge, and I say that on purpose. So because of her socioeconomic position, her consequences would not look like that person that lived in the urban community, who did not have a relationship with the judge, who did not have a multi-million dollar company, who could not afford the resources to make sure that those consequences would disappear, so to speak. Because of that, she wanted to classify a substance use disorder differently. Is she someone that is in need of an intervention? Based upon her medical consequences and complications that she was having as a result of that, the fact that her children were not speaking with her because of her behavior at certain events, based upon those social issues, but again, because she was able to put distance between herself and those other consequences, she didn't believe so. Even with that, even with who needs an intervention and who doesn't, depending upon who we're looking at, that's also subjective. You know, even using our DSM-5 criteria, it's really dependent upon the assessor of that person's alcoholism. One of the things that I've noticed and heard about in the past is the apprehension for family physician to diagnose alcoholism. It makes perfect sense. If I think about a patient that I've had come in, my physician, I've had my physician for for now 25 years. And if I think about someone who has had a relationship with this patient and has progressively watched this person suffer from the symptomology of alcoholism, develop high blood pressure, or they have some gastric issues, their esophagus has started to erode. And I have treated all of those illnesses because I believe that if I try to intervene on this person, the likelihood that they will return to me as a physician, and if they're not seeing me as a physician, who is going going to treat these potentially fatal ailments. So I can see how it would be difficult to make a decision about whether or not they should be the person to intervene, as well as family members. Going back to what we were speaking about before, the deficit in the Black community in terms of uh, appreciation for services, recognizing the need for services in substance use disorder. What can we do to influence, impact, and attract the uh, African-American community into these realms? There are those of us that have have those student loans, we could incentivize some of the African-American providers to return to those communities and offer some of their services. A friend of mine that's working in Denver currently, he's opened a counseling group where he takes Medicare and Medicaid. So he has a large caseload of Black patients. The unfortunate consequence of having a successful practice is that there are people that want to buy out his practice. And the caveat to buying out his practice is the insurances that they are willing to accept. The short story is that they will no longer be accepting the insurances that have brought in that minority population. An answer to it, is that we mobilize people that look like the people living in those communities. And we mobilize them in a way so that they can continue to earn a living after they've received these master's and doctorate degrees and they've gained this experience so they can continue to generate revenue once they go into these communities. I have a number of number of Black patients, both couples as well as individuals on my caseload, none of which are currently living in an urban community. And to be completely transparent, the reason for that is I also must earn a living. 
For those of us that are in private practice, we are operating a business that's dollar for hour. I need patients on my caseload who have the resources to pay for that hour. I speak to like what Dr. Strauss was saying. I think that as a as a country that recognizes that we have an epidemic, that if we want to really make some changes in those communities, then we have to station ourselves in those communities. So many people now, many of them mean well, many of them mean really well, who advertise themselves as substance abuse counselors at one level or another. And I don't know them all. And I'm not going to pretend to even suggest that I have anything other but a limited exposure to some of them. Some of them are good people. They mean well. They really don't understand what they're trying to treat. Right. It frightens me. There are online telehealth services that, as just an older psychotherapist, and maybe I'm just being stuffy in my own ways, but it doesn't seem like we're really addressing the core problems because look at what's happening. It's exploding. Agree or disagree? You know? I agree 100%. I'm grateful for telehealth. The reason I'm grateful for it is because I do it. If I was living in Oak Cliff with a substance abuse or alcohol problem and you're trying to do telehealth with me, it's an impossibility. It's not, it's not going to work. My household was not one that existed like this. It wasn't as if there was peace and quiet. It wasn't as if I felt secure or stable enough to sit in a room for an hour and talk to a mental health professional virtually. What was more likely to actually have an effect was what I was saying before. If there was someone that was within my community, and when I say within my community, I don't mean that there's a storefront that's set up and everyone sits in the office waiting for people to show up. If it was in a community where the providers had relationships with the pastors in those communities and were willing to do work within those churches. We mentioned earlier how the religious leaders within those communities are really the pillars within the community. If we have mental health professionals, and I agree with you 100% when you say we have a lot of substance abuse providers that really don't know what they've gotten themselves into. But if we had mental health professionals who did have that experience, that drive, that were willing to go into these spiritual environments and develop relationships with these pastors and do work within these parishes, I think that we could then really start to do some work. If we could offer some education and some real counseling and substance abuse help within the churches, within these urban communities, we could see it take a ripple effect out. So you would suggest that a collaborative effort with religious leaders is an essential part of a program to reach out to the Black American community? Absolutely. Most pastors will not admit, and this is just an example, they have a very strong influence on the politics within the cities that their churches are in. If they have that type of influence, there's no doubt in my mind that they could have an impact on the mental health services. I'll also say there is also this, this willingness to say that people that are seeking counseling services, that they should go to the pastor and not to some strange mental health counselor. I heard that 15, 20 years ago. I can't say whether or not that's still the, the sentiment. People or the clients that I get into my practice often have either distanced themselves from the church or they have splintered relationships. You know, so very seldom do I have church members 
that reach out to my practice. To your knowledge, has there been any movement here locally in Palm Beaches for collaborative efforts between the mental health professionals and the religious leaders? There have been minor collaborations. Those collaborations have not been on the scale that, that I'm referring to. There have been attempts at facilitating, they call them church recovery groups. So it is efforts by ministers within those congregations that are holding what they call recovery church. It still has the biblical practices. The intent is to offer a spiritual biblical practice to recovering alcoholics and addicts that are a part of their membership. What do you suggest that leadership in the mental health and substance use professional community can do to form a better collaborative effort? I think that we initiate or suggest a think tank where it's a true collaboration. I know, again, because I'm a PK or a preacher kid myself, that a mental health or any type of professional going into the church and telling the pastor what they need to do or what they can do in their church is not going to work. So the invitation to participate in a think tank, I think all of us recognize that there's an issue in Palm Beach County and Florida and the nation abroad as it relates to substance use disorder. Initiating a think tank where we all collaborate on ideas on how we can go about approaching this both from a spiritual and a mental health perspective. I think that they would be open. The importance of combining the medical aspects, which have to be looked at, the mental health aspects, which are kind of blurry when you go between mental health and my third component here, the spiritual aspect. I always ask my patients sooner or later, tell me about your philosophy of life. Tell me about your gestalt. Tell me about religion. What makes you feel good about things? So many of them will say, well, why do you ask? No, part of our lives. And it opens doors, not always the doors that I want to open, to be sure. It's not magic. For a lot of people, they feel like I'm reaching out to just not treat their symptoms, but to treat their soul. And I know that sounds religious, but I think there is a massive overlapping between some spiritual treatment, religious treatment, call it what you wish, and everything else that's part of the totality of us. And we need to do that. It takes time. It's full of errors <laughs> sometimes. It really is. It's for that internal sense of some unity. You've spoken very eloquently about the role of the pastors. What can we do? It dovetails with what Brent was just saying. What can we do to reduce, to modulate, to somehow redirect problems that's exploding? You don't have to limit it just the black community. If you can give us an answer to the whole community, that'll be great as well. If you can give us some more insight into just your particular background community, I'm asking for help. My undergrad is in ministry. So theology is kind of my thing. I like that you mentioned spirituality. And that doesn't really sound religious to me. I think that as mental health professionals, that being holistic is responsible. That what I want to consider is where my patient or client is physically, where they are mentally, where they are emotionally. I really want to help them to navigate all aspects of their being. I think that's important. I think it's responsible in the attempts to be a good human with the expertise that we have that it's reasonable to engage our patients, our friends, our family, and all those areas. To answer your question, that that is the approach that we take as it relates to substance use disorder across the board. Remember that the intent is to help humans, that our training encourages us to take into consideration the cultural aspects of the people that we have chosen to serve. My intent is to try to take into consideration the background of the people that I am looking to help. What happens even for me is that I get into this routine 
of treating clients. And over time, they all start to look similar. My father refers to it as intellectual laziness. I'm not willing to take the time to find out what it is about this individual that brings them into my office with this need to be met. I think part of what we need to do is we need to take a step back, look at what the issue is that we're struggling with, and develop a strategy on how we're going to approach these varied communities in the specific way that they need, as opposed to having these blanket policies that we try to develop. What about other motivating factors for African-American communities, such as professional athletes as mentors for the community? I met a couple of professional athletes, and they are willing to donate funding for work in those communities. Let me explain. Some professional athletes do not have the desire to return to those environments. I mean, those are environments that they've escaped from, so to speak. I remember one of my friends saying, why would I want to go live in a place where I know me and my family are going to be in danger so that I can say that I'm giving something back? For some, their expertise is not to deliver mental health or substance abuse services. So they're willing to make donations to organizations that do, that are experts in those fields. They're just not necessarily that prone to offer their own personal services. And again, it makes perfect sense to me. Not being a professional athlete, not being famous at all, I am hesitant to spend too much of my social time hanging on the corners of Oak Cliff, Texas. It's not because I don't love where I come from, but there's very little that's changed about the crime rates and the risk that a person takes by being in those areas. So as much as I would like to give back to those environments, I'm also extremely reasonable about what it looks like to put myself in harm's way in order to provide those services. So you're saying while such individuals as a professional athlete might potentially be a great mentor for the community, you've personally struggled with getting people to commit on that level. Getting people to commit their physical being to those mentorships. Financial, more than willing to do that. And again, part of the reason, and again, I understand, is that their notoriety in those areas does not guarantee their safety. Another question, something that you have spoken about, the relationship of the black community with 12-step organizations, that this has been often a hostile interaction or there's a lack of 12-step alcoholic anonymous, narcotics anonymous type of programs offered in the African-American communities. I remember part of the conversations that I've had with people that are members of Alcoholics Anonymous is that there are not a lot of people that look like us in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. The majority of 12-step meetings, even in South Florida, they are held in churches. They're in a clubhouse, and very few African-American churches are willing to have Alcoholics Anonymous meetings within those churches. It has a lot to do with the idea of having alcoholics and addicts in the church building after hours. And again, I want you to think about where some of these churches are. They're not in the suburbs of the Black communities. They're within the urban communities in the Black community. I'm sure my father wouldn't mind me mentioning. So my father has what is similar to cages around the AC units at his church. And the reason that he has these cages is because the copper was being stolen on a pretty regular basis. For my father to invite people that have admitted that they have substance abuse history to be in the church after 
after hours to him doesn't sound like a reasonable request in the communities where these black churches are being housed it makes sense why they would have those those fears and so there are not a lot of places within those communities where the meetings can be held even in south florida there are a couple of meetings in the black community that are held in community centers but they're few and far between is that something you think needs to be changed Absolutely. I think that we have to be intentional about the facilities that we reach out to for holding these meetings. As I talk about it, I'm thinking about the places that would be good locations for meetings. Again, there's a meeting in Riviera Beach, also in downtown West Palm Beach, but they are right outside those urban communities. So if we were intentional about where meetings were being suggested to be held, but of course, that's that's an Alcoholics Anonymous conversation that will be taken through what they call the AA intergroup. You mentioned that in these anonymous organization type of meetings, there'll be very few people who look black. With that concept in mind, how important do you think it is that the therapist, that the counselor is the same skin color as their patient, as their client? I think as an introduction, it's, it's very important. If we're talking about having people of African-American descent enter into mental health services, that having some people, not saying that all, but having some people that look like them, very important. Again, referring to the young man that I spoke to today, it's not a guarantee that, that someone's not being listened to, but sometimes that the, that is the assumption. There is this expectation that there will not be the understanding that someone from their community might have. The other thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, to get back to that, is there was a movie out, it was called Anonymous People. It really talked about is the fact that sometimes alcoholics are just too anonymous, that there could be people within the African-American community that are in recovery, but because of the shame that goes along with substance use disorder within that community, that one may never know that they have someone who is in a 12-step program program sitting right next to them in church. Well, Anonymous People kind of talks about ways that alcoholics can become a more supportive arm within those communities by not necessarily sharing their stories. But again, like what I was talking about before, partnering with the leaders within those spiritual communities to reach out within the church, whether they're holding a meeting there or not. I used to work with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. I had a friend of mine who left the Seminole Tribe of Florida to work with Palm Beach Sheriff's Department. And the reason she went to Palm Beach Sheriff's Department is that they were developing a mental health squad. Purpose of the squad was to accompany sheriffs out on calls where they had detected that the person that they were making contact with may have some mental health. So at face value, I thought because they were coming in contact with the African-American community with some frequency, there was a possibility that these mental health professionals would have the opportunity to make contact and to offer services to people within that community. Often when they would go in, that the person was in such a crisis that they were not able to offer the kind of services that I was referring to, that they were more crisis intervention than mental health services. The other piece of that is the African-American community's relationship with law enforcement hasn't really been that great. So even if the sheriffs are being accompanied by mental health workers, sometimes that could do more harm to the idea of mental health services than it can do good. 
particularly a lot of the media images that tend to, shall we say, perpetuate distrust in law enforcement? I agree. I agree. Which is strange for me. My uncle was in law enforcement. My cousin was in law enforcement. And my niece is, is a Dallas County Sheriff. Many family members that are in law enforcement and the image that the media has put out about law enforcement's relationship with the Black community is not completely true. So much. A lot of work to be done. I agree with that. Many more of us have the exact same motivation that are looking to make some changes. Remember from that documentary, Anonymous People, they were talking about the Parity Act. They had a picture of all the people that had participated in the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Parity Act. Dick Van Dykes, several other celebrities admitted they were in recovery, lobbied for this act. There's a number of Black celebrities that have come out and said that they are recovering people. I can only imagine what it would be like if those celebrities were willing to take part in this kind of discussion and were up for brainstorming how we can not only come up with solutions, but how we could initiate those solutions. If they were willing to put their hearts, monies, and minds into, I'm going to call this a movement, we know that we could come up with some viable solutions. Just a closing comment to sum all that up. In looking again at the Black American community and substance use disorder, would you say that there are issues that are particularly specific? to the black community. No, no. And I don't think I'm minimizing the issues when I say that. I think the black community is in need of a translator and some mediation. Is it specific? No, no. I mean, because ultimately we all are all suffering from the same epidemic. Again, I think we are in need of a translator, but that's all. I like that. That's good. It was thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Tommy McGee, licensed mental health counselor, director of Balance Matters Counseling in Delray Beach. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you.